Things get curiouser and curiouser. Despite more than 12 months of the pandemic and now the availability of a vaccine, the future appears no brighter and government overreach has intensified. States such as Victoria still can't prevent COVID-19 outbreaks in quarantine without imposing widespread lockdowns while border restrictions follow in neighbouring states. Despite their ruinous consequences, governments have not justified such policies on scientific grounds. Worse still, they ferment fear and warnings of new, more infectious strains and questionable evidence of the virus in wastewater systems. Why is there no early treatment of COVID-19 in Australia? Why are responsible parliamentarians, eminent immunologists and medical practitioners being censored, bullied or threatened for talking about drugs that are used all over the world successfully in other countries to fight COVID-19? Even with a vaccine, isn't effective early treatment still essential? Can we be confident that the government is acting in our interest? Is state censorship now a way of pandemic life? What is the role of the media and are they acting as chief censors and reporters of scientific fact? Believe us, it's in print. And are we being prepared for mandatory vaccinations with a new vaccine? Craig Kelly MP is a real fighter. He fights for the little guy, you know, you and me, fights for small business and Craig Kelly fights for what is right. Craig Kelly, thank you for joining us. You know, great to be with you, Mike. Now, the COVID Medical Network has received a demand from the TGA to take down the early treatment section from their website. Now, this was great information that really didn't look like advertising. What do you think about the takedown request or demand by the TGA? Well, firstly, I'm very uh, concerned about it. The, uh, the COVID Medical Network has put up nothing other than information. They're not promoting anything. Now, the, the, the issue that the TGA are arguing about uh, in one of the pieces of legislation, uh, it basically says that you cannot advertise a drug without the TGA's approval. And the definition uh, in that act of advertising is drawn rather broadly. But still, you're still going to be able to uh, discuss things. Just because you're discussing things and putting information out there doesn't mean you are out there touting for the sale of a particular drug. And that's the intent of of the legislation, to ensure that there's not people out there sort of like promoting snake oil treatments. Uh, The legislation is not there to prevent discussion about treatments, especially evidence about the effectiveness uh, of these treatments uh, when the TGA are relying on our National COVID Evidence Task Force who are not looking at the evidence. There's an attempt to uh, shut you up for talking about drugs and in the words of Professor Robert Clancy, are used extensively in many countries with dramatic reductions in COVID-19 deaths. Now, before we get into the next part of that, just some of the countries are USA, India, Russia, China, Brazil, France, Jordan, Kenya, list just goes on. Who or what is behind your censorship and just the basic censorship of a discussion about other ways of combating COVID-19? Well, there's, there's a few forms of uh, censorship. Firstly, there's been 
unfortunately, Facebook have actually uh, closed down my Facebook page. Uh, simply because uh, out of a thousand posts that I've made, they complained about four. And those four posts, three of them are actually not my words, but they are quotes with, with the links and the references to some of the most highly credentialed uh, medical professors around the world. People like Professor Tom Barodi. One, one of the posts is actually uh, a cut and paste with a link included to an article in the Spectator magazine written by a highly credentialed journalist about uh, Professor Tom Barodi, about his background, what he's arguing for. And this has actually not only been uh, blocked by Facebook, censored by Facebook, if you know the, a version of the burning of the books, but because I posted it, they've censored me and stopped me from posting other things. So that's the censorship at, uh, at one level. The other censorship is in the mainstream media. They simply refuse to debate this. I say, I'll go on any program, anywhere, anytime to debate these issues because I have all the facts on my side. I have all the quotes from medical experts around the world. I have dozens and dozens of peer-reviewed papers that I can refer to. But the media simply go, oh, Craig Kelly is spreading misinformation. And they don't even discuss what the supposed information that I say. They just label it as this bland, oh, it's misinformation without going into any detail. Mm. And then just it becomes this sort of smear and slime campaign, you know, uh, slanderous attacks upon me. Now, if you want to discuss something, you say someone's uh, spousing misinformation. You say, well, this is what they said. You identify what they said. You say why it is wrong. And then you put the evidence on the table that shows why they are wrong. In in my case, they refuse to even say um, what I say is, is incorrect because they know the minute that they get into the detail they'll be torn apart and slaughtered. And this is just another uh, insidious form of censorship. And, and remember, what we're actually talking about here, it's people's lives. Right? Adam Crichton wrote an article in The Australian the other day and said, we've spent more uh, you know, fighting the, the COVID pandemic uh, than we would have during a war, leaving a horrendous debt for, for future generations uh, to pay off. And yet we've got treatments, early treatments available, which people like some of our highest esteemed professors, Professor Robert Clancy, uh, Emeritus Professor, uh, Professor Tom Barodi, are saying his treatment was ivermectin early treatment. This is what you can use and you won't have all the dramas. We can clean everything up and you can be over COVID in six to eight weeks. That's what they're saying. But yet their ideas are being rejected by the, you know, the, the, the so-called powers of B. Dr. Peter McCullough, um, famed uh, cardiovascular specialist and um, uh, surgeon and all around the world and, and in Dallas at, uh, I think it's Baylor University. Uh, he says uh, historians will look back very unkindly on what's happened. Uh, he said it's a crime against humanity that they've just blocked out early treatment processes and won't even talk about it. Um, now, you've been critical of the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force. Why is this? Why I am very critical of this National COVID Evidence Task Force is they have the job to analyse all the evidence and to make the recommendations. So the recommendations we hear from the TGA, the recommendations that our state health authorities are making, are all based upon the back 
of the recommendations of this National COVID Evidence Task Force. And if you go and you look at the details of how they make these recommendations, so they recommend against hydroxychloroquine, they recommend against zinc. But when you go in there, for example, uh, so they recommend against hydroxychloroquine and zinc, or they recommend against ivermectin. When you go into the details of why they recommend against ivermectin, they say, oh, I've looked at seven studies. The only problem is there's now 40 studies involving over, I think it's something now like 13,000 or 14,000 uh, patients they've looked at. And you, you go to the National COVID Evidence Task Force website today and they say, oh, we've looked at seven studies involving 500 patients. It's simply not good enough. If you don't look at the evidence, of course, you can make these decisions which are just not based in facts and not based in science. The task force is an organisation that receives funding and support from many sources. Where do they get their advice and is it accountable? Well, firstly, as a, this task force, this is what our National COVID Evidence Task Force, has given, been given the job on behalf of the nation to make sure that they're assessing all the evidence. And they talk about this exhaustive search uh, that they do. Now, when it comes, I said, to ivermectin, there are currently 40 published studies that are available. And there's a lot of other anecdotal evidence uh, as well. But there's 40 published trials. Now, when you go to the National COVID Evidence Task Force website, they've only looked at seven studies, seven studies involving 500 uh, patients. But yet in the medical literature, there's a great website, C19, which lists all these studies, that goes, which basically does exactly what the National Code Evidence Task Force does, searches for all these studies and put them on a website. They list 40 published studies involving something like 13 to 14,000 patients. So we've got our National COVID Evidence Task Force looking at less than 5% of the evidence. That's, look, this is simply not good enough. This, this, is, this is one of the most costly issues that our nation has ever faced. It's a global pandemic, and we've got this group only looking at a small fraction of the evidence and making recommendations on only 5%. Like, you know, no matter what aspect of life that we do, we have to make a decision about something. We go about, we gather the evidence, what we can find. We gather all the evidence. We weight some height. We weight some evidence more important than other evidence. Some evidence we may dismiss for certain reasons. And then we make our best judge decision based upon all the evidence. We're not doing that on the recommendation for these treatments because the National COVID Evidence Task Force is not looking at the evidence and they should be called out. And the great tragedy is that our media are failing to do this. This is why the ABC get a billion dollars a year to do this type of investigative journalism. But instead, all you see on the ABC is a pile upon upon me and this repeated mantra, oh, it's misinformation, misinformation. And half of them haven't even got a clue what they are talking about, or even a clue some of the studies and the research that I've actually put on my website. When they say it ain't about the money, it is about the money. Um, just, uh, for example, in, um, in India, they're now selling um, these COVID packs which contain ivermectin, uh, some, uh, an antibiotic and some other bits and pieces for $2.60. Uh, other countries are giving it away uh, in Brazil, uh, which uh, they're using ivermectin. And just quote from a, a mayor there, as I put my glasses on, the, the use of ivermectin is extremely necessary and beneficial. 
as it prevents the spread of the, of the disease, helps to reduce the viral load and reduce the effects of COVID on people. And that's from the mayor of Natal in Brazil. And, uh, and he, he, so he would have made that commentary based on, upon a lot of expert medical evidence that's been presented to him. Hmm. It's just it's the, the whole world, or not the whole world, but uh, a great chunk of the world uh, is looking at early treatment, yet it seems like the West, such as uh, Australia and the US, uh, England, um, aren't really looking at it. We have these draconian restrictions, though, that you can't really talk about it. Uh, at least in the US, they can still use it uh, if, if, uh, you know, if pushed, if you know, it comes to a shove. But here, you you're just not allowed to talk about it. First, a couple of points to make on that. Um, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are off patent. So just to explain that, when a new drug gets listed uh, for sale, there's millions of dollars of research that goes into it. And it's fair enough that the drug companies, you want to encourage them to undertake that research. So we have a, uh, a patent system that grants them a patent for 20 years. So if a, a drug company discovers a new drug, they get a monopoly right to sell that drug for whatever price they want for 20 years. And even though some people say, oh, that's unfair, but it is fair because you've got to be able to attract the research into that drug. And if you cut out this patent system, you're not going to get the medical research that we need into the drug. So that system is fine. But the problem we've got, when the drug goes off patent, any uh, laboratory can make it. So the price, all of a sudden, you don't have to... uh, get compensation for the research and development that's involved because that's happened over the past 20-year period. So the fact is hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are basically dollars, if not cents, to produce. But as such, they have no lobbyists. They have no PR team. They have no uh, advertising. Uh, They've got no one going around the corridors of power, you know, sort of knocking on all the parliamentarians' doors saying, okay, this is something here. We, we We need this approved. Uh, and the other way around, there's billions of dollars if you get a new uh, new drug uh, approved through the system. So it's like uh, money talks in every aspect mm. of life. And unfortunately, you've got uh, one group with one t- type of drugs, like uh, remdesivir and other drugs that have been recommended without anywhere near the evidence that currently exists for ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. They've been approved because they cost several thousand dollars per treatment because, again, they've got a lot of... Uh, people behind to push them but hydroxychloroquine ivermectin then there ain't no pr team pushing them because there's no financial incentive because they're off patent i think that's something that uh long term we need to have a look at how we actually work with uh our intellectual property laws to make sure if something like this happens again that if there is a you can repurpose some of these existing drugs but there's got to be some way to get them onto a level playing field with the with, with the other drugs. The, uh, just uh, getting back to the uh, censorship thing, uh, and it's really worrying because this sort of goes goes past the uh, COVID. It goes more towards uh, shutting down free speech, and we all, you know, I know that my my family and friends and uh, they sort of roll their eyes to think, well, it's not going to happen here. Yeah, we've got plenty of free speech. Our speech is being, and our freedom is being eroded at a great rate of knots, as they would say. Um, and we have one of the main perpetrators of this garbage that's coming out, this one thing, thing 
or uh, which relates to a group thing is the mainstream media. Now, you know, you've been in politics for a long, long time. Have you ever seen such a docile bunch of numbskulls that won't ask the hard questions and just follow the narrative from the group think? Look, I've seen it on uh, issues such as of climate change, but I've never seen it anything as bad as this. Mm. I've talked to a lot of journalists and I've gone, you know, quietly, go and look at the evidence, please, please, please. Just read the evidence. That's all I ask you to do. And they sort of like, I'm an R and huff and puff sort of thing. Like, you know, I was on a national morning show here the other day and one of the, uh, the morning presenters uh, said that, oh, I, I went online last night and I've rebutted all your theories. Hang on a minute. First, first, they're not my theories. And secondly, these are the advice of people like Professor Peter McCullough mm. that's got a, a peer-reviewed study with 50 co-authors uh, published in the American Journal of Medicine mm. that's put in protocol. And he's this journalist saying that she's rebutted them by look, going online overnight. Now, you've got the views of uh, emeritus professor uh, uh, Robert Clancy, uh, someone that has ex- spent his life uh, in immunology, has an order of Australia for services to immunology, someone that's actually gone through the processes and invented a vaccine for bronchitis so that knows all the mucosal systems, how they work inside out. So his ideas have been so-called uh, rebutted uh, by journalists looking at stuff online uh, overnight. The the standard yeah. of the media, I mean, I'm on, on, on this because they really get up my nostrils at the moment, um, there was, uh, you know, this, the anti-Trump rhetoric, rhetoric that came from, uh, from the media. And one of the uh, perpetrators was with uh, news.com.au, which is one of the great left publications now. Um, and it, the, the person writing the story about Trump, forget about the story, uh, which is a world of world interest. Uh, she worked at a, um, uh, her last job about two years prior or a year and a half was as a, an assistant editor for a women's magazine at a Queensland university and then as a travel blogger. And then she's writing about world affairs. Uh, I mean, I, I, I just, I'm thinking, where are we going with this? It's just this clickbait. And then you have uh, the support from the media towards government. And look at Dan Andrews, for example. I mean, he's absolutely destroyed. I mean, the, the Labor premiers, it's like the, the, the finger on the trigger. It's like, got to click it, got to click it, got to call a, uh, a lockdown. It's really good fun. Control everybody. So we have the mainstream media and the left basically gaining stronger control of what we're doing here, which rolls over to our health. I mean, we're talking about a vaccine. We're talking about COVID. Nobody's saying the vaccine is not necessary. Nobody is saying that um, that COVID-19 isn't real, except some, some nut jobs. But basically, it's, it's a very real thing. It must drive you nuts because we have this, this, this group. Well, a group thing. Well, group thing is really, think is bad because it, it would insinuate there's some sort of uh, brain process. <laughs> Look, I think the, um, this is where I've been very critical of the, uh, the ABC in this circumstances. This should have been, this is exactly why we have the ABC, is where uh, you know, certain, you know, the main networks are all subject to commercial influences. So the ABC should have been an independent body actually looking at the evidence, researching, doing proper investigative journalism. But instead, they've joined upon 
basically what is uh, you know, just simple, straight groupthink and the pylon. And part of the reason for this, and there's no question whatsoever about this, when President Trump first mentioned hydroxychloroquine, mm. there was a large section of the media that thought, okay, this is a way we can attack him. So we've got to show that not only he's wrong, but he's dangerous. So any single, single thing that was favourable to show evidence that hydroxychloroquine should be an effective treatment to be used was demonised. So the entire drug was demonised. So the danger, how dangerous that is, is cannot be understated. Uh, the same with ivermectin. Now that as an early treatment has also uh, been demonised. Now, what's going to happen? You talk about uh, a vaccine hesitancy. You've created now because of all this reporting. There is no doubt very soon that ivermectin will be approved by the World Health Organization. It's just a matter of time. Now, when it is, because the media has uh, created all these called it snake oil, uh, called it quack cures. You've created this hesitancy in people's minds about using this particular drug. And that is going to cost people's lives. Mm. No doubt about it around the world because of this media. But it's going to cost people's jobs. It's going to cost this country wealth simply because people will say, oh, I read about that before it's snake oil. And they'll be their ideological biases will be locked in. And no matter what evidence that's presented to them, they'll continue to think that it's a treatment that is uh, a snake oil. And they would be disinclined to take take it. And this is this is, and unfortunately, there's no provisions in the uh, the TGA Act. So you, if you actually so-called promote a drug, or or you tell uh, you put evidence up of a peer-reviewed study of a drug being effective, that they can take you uh, theoretically can take you to court over. But you get other sectors of the media standing up and say this treatment is snake oil, completely misleading, completely deceptive, mm. uh, harm to people's health. And they can get away with it. Do you think the government stuffed up from the start? I'm sure it was a uh, it was a pandemic, and there was a lot of many unknowns. But they, I think, they stuffed up a uh, very Australian term there. But by inciting fear, fear was the great driver, you know, and, and still is because people are petrified. Look at the uh, the elections in. Um, uh, in Queensland, Palaszczuk got in only on the fear factor. Look at in Victoria, um, Dan Andrews, and he's still he's still popular, but he's saving people's lives from this great disease. And I'm sure I saw uh, Palaszczuk the other day, by the way, behind a tree jumping on the coronavirus because it was like little things running around. She's stomping it out, got to save our lives. So the fear thing. Uh, Dan Andrews is working. I'm sure McGowan and WA will do just as well because people are really scared of it, which was perpetrated by the federal government, by the state governments, by local councils and by the media. And also mobs like Monash University. Oh, they're dreadful. Put out on their letter that had that had on the front of their letters that they posted out. It had no matter how bad you think coronavirus is, it's actually worse. And this is from a, a leading university. Mm. But I just, just going back, but I think as, as a federal government, I, speak, I actually think we did a couple of things uh, right at the start. Uh, re- and remember, this was against World Health Organization advice. And this is why debate and free debate is so important. Mm. Remember, at the very start of the pandemic, the World Health Organization said, you don't need to close your borders to China. Mm. Uh, and the prime minister said, hang on a minute. We're going to close our borders to China. 
Now, Facebook at the moment are banning anyone that says anything that's contrary to World Health, uh, World, the World Health Organization. So the fact is that we defied the World Health Organization, we took advice contrary to them, and we acted against their advice was a great protection to the Australian nation when we closed those borders to China early. That was one of the best things we did. Yeah. The second good thing that we did is that federally we didn't panic like New Zealand did to the same extent. And we kept a lot of our uh, industries going. We kept our mining industry going. We kept our farming going. We kept a lot of our warehousing and manufacturing going. Um, as we're over in New Zealand, they closed a lot of these things down altogether. Now, that's you closing down the wealth creation uh, aspects of the country. Um, thankfully, we, we didn't go down that track. But some of the state premiers have seen this as a wonderful opportunity to see themselves as the great saviors of the country. But just an example to show you how ridiculous the border closure is between New South Wales and Queensland. If that was successful, what you would expect to see, you would see the border uh, at Queensland there at Tweed Heads and Coolangatta, and you would see all these infections just south of the border, in like in uh, down in Tweed Heads uh, and in northern New South Wales and in Lismore uh, and all these other places in northern New South Wales. You would see all these infections right up to the border and there you would see where the border was drawn. Mm. You don't. You can't see that. So the idea that you would close a state border uh, is, and the idea this was somehow effective is not borne out by the evidence because otherwise you would see all these infections all the way up the New South Wales north coast, all the way up, you know, from, from Tamworth up, you would see all these infections, Tamworth grafted on the way up to Lismore, you would see all these infections, and then you'd see this line where it stopped. It's not like that. The evidence shows that it was just a complete mm. political uh, stunt um, that actually played into people's fears and has cost the economy very dearly and has cost a lot of, a lot of people their jobs and has caused untold harm that's going to take us years and years to try and you know, get back to square one. But what about also, uh, Craig, you've got, um, you know, they the, the talk of new strains. So if there's a new strain, we have to lock down until we get another vaccine for that new strain. Uh, they're talking about it in the US uh, from six to 10 years, uh, the COVID emergency, because the left love the word emergency, climate emergency, COVID emergency, Trump emergency. I mean, it's just an emergency, but they're wanting to, you know, this is the, the power the government has and mainstream media has. I mean, I, I read in Australia the other day, we have an Australian strain. That's one probably comes with a sausage and a beer, but which is not so bad. But, you know, all these strains, that's just part of a virus. Yeah, from what I've read, this, this is typical of what you expect. You expect the... Uh uh, you know, and that's a mutant strange, you know, mm. because <laughs> but the, the mutations of, of the virus are from what I've read and spoken to professors around the world uh, is what you would, would expect. Um, but this is all the more reason why some of these early treatments are so important. Mm. Okay. They, uh, well, they appear to be all the strains. And just remember, at the moment, the official uh, advice in Western countries, as opposed to a lot of other countries that have actually seen the light, they're not so much influenced by Big Pharma. In Western countries here in Australia, if you get a positive COVID test, so go home, isolate. If you get sick, have some Panadol. Mm. And if you're really sick and you go blue on the face and can't breathe, corn ambulance and we'll get you specially to, we'll get specially to hospital, to a special ward in hospital. Now, 
a lot of the doctors around were saying this is insane. They're saying for every illness that we ever have, the earlier you treat, the better. And they're saying we've got all these other treatments that our doctors are swearing by and screaming the house down. And they're saying you've got to, the earlier you can treat, the better. And yet we've got all these treatments being blocked here in Australia. Well, if you look at, because um, they're saying up to, uh, well, not up to, uh, around about 85% uh, reduction in, in uh, hospitalisation and deaths. Now, if you just uh, move that across, say, to the US, uh, that would uh, reduce the whole bunch of deaths if they haven't been doctored these figures, which some have, we have been told. I've got to be careful what I say here. Um, but that would reduce the deaths and hospitalizations by 85% if they did early sure. treatment. And the same here. I mean, uh, and again, you know, it's hindsight's a terrible thing because what we know now, if we knew that back then, we wouldn't probably be in this situation. So we're not attacking government here and, and the, uh, the bureaucracy uh, because that's all they knew. But if you allowed early treatment, we wouldn't have this yeah, inverted commas, which the left love, emergency. Professor Barodi, it was August last year, uh, put out a press release recommending the use of um, ivermectin, zinc and doxycycline as an early treatment. He called it the triple therapy. That was following an Australian researcher that uh, I think it was back in uh, March or April that found that uh, ivermectin can be... Uh, COVID can be killed in the test tube by ivermectin. Since Professor and Pro- Professor Barati said, look, we can clean it all up in six to eight weeks. Since then, over a million people have died around the world from or with COVID. You mm. could have said, just, just stop and think about this. If the world had have listened to Professor Barati, you're talking potential of 800,000 lives that could have been saved. Mm. This is, the, this is the argument. This is what I've been trying to put forward, this evidence that supports people like Professor Berardi, Professor Clancy, Professor McCulloch, Professor Marrick, Professor Cavallo. I could go on and on and on. Professors from all around the world that have been arguing this case to try and put their statements before the media. And for that, I've been vilified. Mm. Talk about the potential uh, loss of, of hundreds of thousands uh, of lives. This will go down in history as one of the greatest mistakes and greatest errors ever known to mankind. As Dr. McCullough says, it's a crime against humanity. Uh, I would imagine there will be uh, people out there doing the pointing the finger. It's almost like the Stepford Wives, that, that movie with, um, uh, with um, Nicole Kidman. And they're walking through it. And because they knew they were different, they would point until they... Yeah, until they were made the same as everybody else and along with the group thick and stuff. Mm-hmm. Look, as a, uh, as a, um, a member of the government, uh, loved by all, <laughs> except maybe Tanya Plibersek. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say that much, is it? No, one I'm of tra- our friends on the, one of my so-called friends on the left that I don't think love me very, don't show me much love, I'll tell you that. No, I'm just trying to be nice to you here, Craig. But, but where, where do you see, you know, using both your government resources and your personal gut feeling, yes. where do you see that we'll be in, say, th- I won't say three months, say six months' time? Have we gotten over then the, this fear of early treatment? And how successful do you think the vaccine will be? If I can make one prediction, in the coming weeks, 
I believe that the World Health Organization will finally admit they can no longer hold back the tide of evidence and will make recommendations that ivermectin is an approved treatment uh, for COVID. Write that down, uh, put in a bit of a time capsule, and let's see what's happened in about four to six weeks to see if We'll do that, and we'll see if the uh, the group thing sort of the group think thing sort of just vanishes, and uh, they get behind you, stop pointing at you, they pat you on the back. Craig Kelly, thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Cheers. In the US, there's much uncertainty following the election of Joe Biden as president. Many new and controversial policies have been imposed through executive order, while Congress has been fixated with the impeachment proceedings and political theatre to get at Donald Trump. Small business has been devastated by sweeping lockdowns such as in California and New York. And the COVID relief package still waiting to happen. In this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. And that's according to Benjamin Franklin. And a man who knows a lot about taxes, Blake Christian, a partner at Holthouse, Cullen and Van Trite. Blake, great to see you. Great to see you, Mike. Look, COVID relief for small business from the Biden administration will be decided by community boards and panels and looks as if colour will be part of the criteria. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, you know, I've seen a, a couple of things that they're, they're certainly going to give uh, priority to the communities of colour. And, and that seems to be based on the fact that uh, the um, infection rate and the death rate is is higher in those communities there's there tends to be a lot more diabetes heart disease etc um so i think that's their rationale i think you're being generous with the word rationale but anyway <laughs> moving right along now there's been talk of both long-term and short-term capital gains being taxed at very high federal rates by the new administration can you tell us any more about this in any likely timing Right. So, so currently, the, the maximum tax rates on long-term capital gains is, is 20%, and then they layer on another 3.8% if, uh, if you make more than $200,000 of uh, adjusted taxable income. And so it, it's you know, a reasonable rate. Now, Biden, during the campaign, um, promised and uh, an article I saw just today seems to reinforce this that for taxpayers making more than a million dollars even if it's a long-term capital gain meaning it was held for more than a year um, he will tax that at a 37% rate plus the 3.8 so you're at 40.8% so it's a it's a 17 point jump in the rate, uh, which if, and if you translate that into a, a percentage increase, it's about 85% increase in the tax rate. Uh, and then in today's article, they said that he's he's seems to be uh, open to lowering that million dollar threshold. So it might be people making, you know, less, um, lesser than that and um, still be taxed at, at a very, very high rate. So I, personally, I think that'll just dry up uh, investment funds. You know, I mean, why are people going to put their money at risk if uh, federal and state taxes eat 50% of it away? You know, that first 
you know, a quarter of that right now. Mm. Tell us about the Opportunity Zones program, though, and its benefits. Yeah, so so we've had a lot of uh, situations um, towards the end of 2020 and, and certainly the beginning of 2021. You know, the stock market here, as you know, has been on fire. Uh, cryptocurrencies been on fire. Bitcoin, you know, hit fifty thousand uh, dollars a coin uh, today, and so we've had a lot of you know instant millionaires just just you know play in the markets, and so since those those are already going to be taxed at a thirty seven percent rate because they're short term gains, so they're taxed you know at the highest rate uh, of any type of income, those are going to be, um, you know, perfect candidates to be rolled into the opportunity zone uh, program because you'll, you're going to defer, be able to defer that tax until 2026. Um, hopefully, you know, Biden won't, wouldn't get a second term and, and have these high capital gain rates. Uh, but you, you take away what I just illustrated, that 85% jump in the long-term capital gain rates, um, he's only talking about increasing the short-term capital gain rates under under the worst-case scenario, you know, maybe, uh, you know, 2 or 3%. And that'll be wiped out because in an opportunity zone investment, you get a 10% bump in your basis after you've held it for five years. So, It'll just neutralize any tax rate increase that a reasonable tax rate increase that he would come up with. So, so again, short-term capital gains are perfect to stuff into an opportunity zone fund because you don't have any rate risk that um, uh, you're going to pay more in tax by kicking the can down the road. It's uh, really interesting times right now with the, the Biden administration and its approach to its socialistic uh, policies. Um, you talk, mentioned before investment, and uh, it may just dry up. Um, if it was to dry up the investment, um, is there a black hole or a hole there, sorry, that uh, another economy can move in? Well, yeah, I mean, the natural, you know, what's, what's going to happen is the Chinese, most likely, uh, other foreign countries would move their money into this space. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know, but, you know, if... if uh, you as uh, an Australian citizen were to invest in uh, intangible assets over here, you know, uh, stocks, bonds, etc., cetera, uh, corporate, you know, stock of a, of a private entity, um, you wouldn't pay U.S. tax on that uh, because, you know, not being a resident here, it's sourced to where you are a resident um, internationally. So, um, so they, they wouldn't have the same concerns that a lot of the uh, Americans would. They, they get treated better under the tax code uh, than we do. So, so it's an America's second policy, whereas under Trump, it was America first, which is really <laughs> interesting, though. If you think about it, America has always been this great, um, great, not, not a pie in the sky, but it's something that you would aim for, that if you worked really hard, um, you, you took some risk and put your head down and your your uh, rump up facing <laughs> to the sky. You actually um, did pretty well because the Americans were out there rooting for you and wanting you to do some very good things. So the um, the, the private or the the, the business um, 
uh, ethics were there. That you work hard, make money, do well, uh, help your neighbour if you can. Do you see this ethic, this this formula that's worked for such a long, long time in the US? Do you see this formula being eroded by uh, socialistic policies, wanting to do good for everybody, and in the term sacrificing the the industries that created the wealth to to uh, do good things? Yeah, yeah, we're we're certainly seeing that you know over the last year with COVID. Um, with the CARES Act and, um, you know, providing, um, you know, longer unemployment benefits. And I, I was all for that, but the, pro- the problem was they didn't really geographically base those figures. And so some people in, in certain areas were, you know, were making a lot more money on unemployment than they were working and uh, restaurants and things had terrible trouble getting those people to come back to work. Uh, they just they just said, you know, I'll, I'll be back to work once my, um, you know, my multi-month benefits wear out, even though they had a, you know, their old job to go back to. So, um, and then we're, you know, we're also seeing that with, you know, this pressure to you know, pay $15 an hour, you know, minimum wage. Again, there, there's no effort to make that uh, different based on cost of living in different mm. um, areas. And, and like I've said before, you know, in Manhattan or on the west side of L.A., you know, 15 is probably not the right number. It should probably be higher. But um, at the same time, if you're in Des Moines, Iowa, um, you know, ten dollars may be appropriate. Not that's, to pick that, on. Des that's a lot of money in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> but, uh, nothing in Des Moines, yeah, Iowa. I assume that's a lot of money. Mm. But look, the the other thing too is the flow-on effect to uh, to running a business. Right. You know, and if you take somebody, you know, that's making twelve fifty an hour, take them to fifteen, you know, roughly a twenty percent increase. And you're right that that is just going to ripple through the whole economic system. And, uh, and and nobody talks about that. You brought it up. But yeah, you know, those senior people that have worked there uh, for two or three years and are, are making $15, $16 an hour are going to have to get bumped or they're going to walk. Mm. You know, they don't want that brand new person making more than they are. It's a, it's a real dilemma, um, something that the Biden administration have put a lot of thought into, obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> now, if somebody, I'm trying to keep off off the minefield for you, Blake, so we're not going to go you know, tap dancing on the mines. Uh, if somebody Thanks. wants to find out more about Opportunity Zones or just in for a good conversation, uh, how do they get hold of Blake Christian, CPA extraordinaire? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so our website is www.hcvt.com. And uh, so you can, you know, just put in uh, opportunity zones. It'll take you to that page and all the articles and things. Or you can just Google Blake Christian CPA and uh, a lot of my articles and my contact information will come up that way. Blake Christian, thank you very much. Always great to see you, Mike. Well, well, well. Project Veritas released a new video today provided by a brave Facebook insider exposing Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg's contradictory position when it comes to COVID-19 vaccines. 
Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook CEO in July 2020 says, but I do just want to make sure that I share some caution on this vaccine because we just don't know the long-term side effects of basically modifying people's DNA and RNA. Basically, the ability to produce those antibodies and whether that causes other mutations or other risks downstream. Now, I presume Mark will take that down immediately, but if you want to see the full video, you can see it at projectveritas.com. So that's it. A full show today. Thank you so much for tuning in. For Asia Pacific Today, I'm Mike Ryan.